Welcome to the Brett Boone Podcast as we explore the mind of former MLB All-Star, Silver Slugger, and Gold Glove winner Brett Boone as he sits down with his friends from the world of professional sports. Brought to you by DraftKings Sportsbook. On this episode of the Boone Podcast, Brett sits down with longtime Major League coach and manager John McLaren. All right, let's do this. And now, here's your host, Brett Boone. Welcome to the Boone Podcast. I'm Brett Boone, and today on the program, I sit down with one of my all-time favorites. His big league career as a coach and manager has spanned over 33 years, and today he's going to take us behind the scenes as to what goes on amongst a big league coaching staff. Ladies and gentlemen, John McLaren. Johnny, thanks for coming on the program. Thanks, Booney. Thanks for having me. And, Mac, uh, I got to say, Right, right off the top. You got a minute? You got a minute for Boone today? It's funny. I ran into Tom Blamkin yesterday, and he said the same thing, Booney. <laughs> and and yeah, for, that was great. That, that was that was part of the chemistry in our in, in our clubhouse, uh, Brett, with Dan Dan Wilson and uh, uh, Jay Buner. And whenever I hear from any of you guys, uh, it's always you got a minute, and. Um, I think you're the one that originated it, but it was um, it was it was a nice little uh, making everybody feel welcome, and um, it just puts a smile on my face, you know, when when, when I hear you say it. Yeah, and just for for further context for the audience, it's this got a minute thing was something that came came upon. Well, I learned about it. I, I don't know, Johnny. You say I made it up. I might up. I, I made up a lot of stuff, but in the I, I've been with Johnny since uh, I, I, we met back in '93, kind of my rookie year, and we've known each other for 30 years. And um, in the early 2000s, when I came back to Seattle for a second time, uh, we had a pretty unique bunch in that clubhouse in Seattle. And our way of communicating was John was kind of the captain. He was the bench coach. He was the guy that 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 kind of got out into that clubhouse and took the temperature of the team and, and just figured out what was going on on that team, which which is part of his job. But he would address everybody the same way. And it was a boon. Uh, you got a minute. And, and even if he didn't have anything to say to me. He had to address me that way and vice versa. If I needed something from Johnny, even though I didn't, I, I didn't need anything, but I'd see him, yeah. you know, down the hallway and say, hey, Mac, and, and he'd turn around. Yeah, Booney, what do you got? And I say, uh, you got a minute? And he'd say, yeah, I got a minute. What do you need? I said, no, I don't need one. I just want to know if you had one. So for context for you listening, uh, that's where it came from. Um, and we're going to get to that a little bit later. A lot of lot of fun and a lot of special times in that clubhouse. I got one question for you, though, off the top before we get into John McLaren. Okay. When you were away from me, Mac, and and not at you know, we we weren't on the same team. So your time in Tampa Bay probably is the yep. most significant. You know, right after we were together, what was the scouting report on Brett Boone? Well, I, I would I would just say sometimes you got impatient, and um, if you were spinning spinning off the ball, uh, I, I I told you I said you spin like a top today, Boone. Stay in there, and um, uh, I would just say you know we 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 can we can run the ball low and away from him, and then he gets frustrated. You might be able to uh, go up the ladder and make him chase, but if you miss. Uh, he's going to get you. He's going he's to hit a long ball. 
And I've always told people this, Brett, you had the best bat flip I ever saw that had style, but showed respect for the game. And I mean that in all sincerity. And uh, it was a classic bat fit, uh, flip. And, you know, I think of Ruben Sierra and I think of Ricky Henderson from uh, the real good days that I remember in the big leagues. And uh, they had their own style too. But you you had a classy, classy uh, bat flip. And uh, uh, you did it in a professional way. Well, thanks, Matt. And we had a lot of fun with it, too. You know, Mac, Johnny was always the first one uh, when anything happened, you know, good or bad. And he'd have that question for you. You know, it'd be, boom, you got a minute. Uh, are you telling me yeah. you hit that ball pretty good? <laughs> and I'd say, yeah, Mac, I hit it. I, and and vice, I, vice versa, on the flip side, I'd strike out and he'd, he'd call me over on the side and he'd go, uh, Boone, come over here. You got a minute? And I'd say, yeah, Mac, what do you got? And he goes, uh, seems to me you're not seeing seeing the spin on that slider very good. And I'd say, Mac, right again, and we'd move on. That was just our, <laughs> our relationship, and it kept things loose because it's so hard, Mac, and you know you've been around this game in so many different capacities for so many years. You know how hard this game is, and Absolutely. you have to have some easy, levity. It looks easy on TV to a, lot of our, uh, to a lot of our fans, and they get frustrated and um, – you know, like in the playoffs, you know, you know, some of the big boys don't hit in the playoffs. Well, they're not giving them anything to hit. They get a little over anxious. They want to help the team and they expand the strike zone. And that's what you have scouting reports for. If they're frustrated, you can expand the strike zone. And, you know, if you had somebody like Roger Clemens that had velocity, that, that had real good control, plus he was conveniently wild, you're in trouble. And, uh, um, you know that's 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 part of the game in the playoffs. But can, can I tell a couple boon stories before you ask? Oh, I, I'm sure they're going to be sprinkled throughout this. But Mac, if you if you got to tell one to lead it off, go ahead. Go ahead. Well, the, I didn't know you very well. I knew your dad. Um, so in 1993, um, we of course we didn't have a spring training field. We had to play on the road every game. And we played our first game against the Angels. Uh, do you remember that? I do. Oh, oh, I know where you're going with this. Yes, oh, yeah. all right. Oh, yeah. Well, uh, so anyway, uh, leadoff hitter of the game, we're playing the Angels over in Tempe, and I think it was Tiny Felder or Rich Amarald, uh hits a double. So there's a runner on second, Boone's hitting second. And, I mean, he hits an absolute rocket down the third baseline. And Renee Gonzalez or somebody made a hell of Gary a play. Gaetti. Back- Gary Gaetti. Made a hell of a play. I mean, a hell of a play. And Boone's coming back to the bench. And, you know, way to go, Boone. He's high-fiving. <laughs> and Lou gets up and he says, uh, hey, Boone, you hit that ball good. He goes, yes, sir. I, you know, I, I hit it right on the nails. He said, that's a runner on second base. He says, uh, in winning baseball, we give him a third base. And he pointed down the left field line. And you started running in the top of the first inning. If I remember, time you got down, it was the bottom of the first inning. But you started running the first game we ever played. Is that correct? That is correct. And to this day, that was one of the – it wasn't the scariest moment, but it was one of the most confused moments I've ever had because we we all know how Lou and myself started out. You know, at at the end of the day, uh, Lou's my favorite of all time, manager-wise. 
And, but it yeah. didn't start out that way, Mac, and you were there for the whole ride. But I oh, remember, I, you know, I'm just this young kid and, you know, I, I had a little bit of I had a little bit of an edge to me. But it was kind of back in those days in 1993, you know, when you're hitting in that two hole, your objective is as a hitter is is to move that runner over. And I remember like it was yesterday, it was Chuck Finley on the mound. I was looking to hit a ball the other way and Chuck had a good fastball and he was one of the few left-handed pitchers in the game that had a split finger. Um, And that split finger, the whole, the whole point of a split finger fastball is to give the perception that it's a four seam fastball, but it's a split. So I get out on my front foot thinking it's a fastball, but I, but I stay back enough and then just wham and I square it. It's not like I was trying to hit a ball down a left field line. It just so happened to do that. Yeah. I hit it as hard. I hit it as hard as I could hit it. And it, remember, put it in you know in perspective here. I, I had 120 at bats in the big leagues. I'm the heir apparent. I'm supposed to be the second baseman that spring training, and I I need to prove. Yeah. You know, it's Lou Pinella and his old crews coming over from from Cincinnati. So yeah. whatever I did last year, I, I've got to prove myself that I'm that I'm capable of of playing second base on this team. So I think right out of the shoot, I think, wow, I hit that ball hard. All right. Well, at least I, I had a good at bat, not necessarily yeah. good at bat getting him over, but I come back to the bench and you're right. Guys like Buner going, Boney hit the shit out of that ball. Then I'm yep. thinking, okay, yep. I'm okay. Yep. And Lou said it exactly with a straight face. Hey son, you hit the crap out of that ball. So I'm thinking, <laughs> you know, he's going to compliment me right here. And uh, why don't you go get your running in? Because when I tell you to get the runner over, I mean, get the fan. And I'm in left field, and that crowd is yelling at me. Like, you must be really good, kid. You only have to play one inning. And I'm just, I'm like, oh, my gosh, I'm in trouble. And I just got here. But uh, I'll I'll never forget that moment. Yeah, but that's not my best story. Uh, Save them. You're going to have plenty of time to get them in. That's a good one for an opener, though. All right. All right. I got, right. I got one better, but we'll go to it later. Uh, Johnny Mack as a kid. Grew up in Texas. I, I want to know what you were like as a little kid. What was your, what was your family like? Uh, was it always yeah. baseball? You, you, you let me know. Well, my, my mother and dad, um, um, they were split up before I was born. And I lived with my grandparents in Galveston, Texas, until I was six. And that's when I fell in love with baseball. I would watch the game of the week with my grandfather, uh, who was an umpire in Galveston. And we'd, we'd watch, um, um, Dizzy Dean and Pee Wee Reese. And I just, I fell in love with baseball. And there was a, there was an elementary, um, two blocks from my uh, grandparents' house. And I would go down there every day looking for a game and um, I just uh, I fell in love with the game, and um, uh, my mother was the most supportive parent you could ever seen. She uh, um, she gave she gave me everything I needed in baseball, and uh, uh, I went to Mickey Owen baseball camp one summer when I was uh, 13 years old, and um, it was just. Uh, um, you know, I was, I was gung ho on baseball. I, I just, you know, I was so dedicated and, um, I was a straight arrow and, um, I had a great passion for the game and I was always a great competitor. And, 
when I went with Lou, I took it to a new level. But um, uh, always, always love the game. I just um, that's that's my message to everybody. I don't care if you're new school, you're old school, you're in between. Just show the game respect. That's all I ask. I have, I you know, that's all I care about these days is uh, spreading the word about baseball, teaching young kids, and um, just just to respect the game, which 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 it deserves. You went to Westbury High. Uh, you play football at all, Mac? Because it did. seems like the guys that, the guys it, that come was, on the it podcast. It's probably about a wise choice. Ended up getting a knee operation. Uh, I was projected to be a, a first couple rounds draft choice in 1970. I went in the seventh round with the Astro, my home uh, home club, of course, and got up to AAA and. Uh, that's when I first ran across Pat Gillick. He was one of our big scouts with Houston. And after that, we, we were, I worked together for 17 years with Pat with Toronto and uh, um, Seattle. Because it seems like the, the guys that come on the show that were, that did grow up in Texas, it's, they talk about the high school football games in Texas and how they're almost collegiate. You know, uh, the, the whole city comes out for it. And, uh, you know, on, I uh, I went to high school, college in Southern California, and it's a pretty big deal. Friday night, our high school's having their game. Uh, it was a pretty big yeah. deal, but they say Texas is, does it at a different level. Yeah, they that's all that they care about. I mean, that's, you know, there's not a whole lot of entertainment for those, especially the people who live on farm and ranches. Uh, when it's Friday night, it's football and Saturday night it's football and the whole town comes out. And then, I mean, even, um, you know, some of your bigger programs in Texas up, up around the Dallas area, I mean, they got 30,000, um, seat stadium for high school games. I mean, it's, it's incredible. Some of the stadiums that they have. Mention you get to the you get to the uh, MLB draft 1970. You're, you mentioned you go seventh round to the to the Houston Astros, and this is for me. It, you know, it's amazing for as long as we've known each other, many talks as we've had. This is where it gets. I'm reading up on John McLaren, Blind College, University of Saint Thomas, Houston ba- Baptist University. That's where you that's where you got your education. Yet you were a seventh yeah. round pick, and you signed out of high school. How did that? How did that filter in? When did all this schooling take place around your professional career? Well, my mom said if you want to sign, which I did. I mean, I I, I had offers from Arizona State, University of Texas, Texas A and um, I don't know if I could have gotten in all those schools, but uh, I really wasn't a student type. And um, my mom says. Uh, uh, if, if you want to play professional baseball, you have to go to school. So I got my education paid for. And so in the off season, I went to school and, um, I actually made good grades when there was nothing on the line. When I, you know, it used to be just stay eligible. That was the main thing. And when I didn't have that pressure of staying eligible, I actually really, um, buckled in and I was a solid B student and, uh, it was a great experience for me to go to these places. Um, you know, Blend Junior College was a lot of kids from all over Texas that were from small schools, and uh, uh, I really enjoyed myself. And 
uh, going to Houston Baptist and the University of St. Thomas, both there in Houston, uh, it just gave me a different look. And, um, uh, um, you know, I was taking meteor, uh, uh, the courses I'd never taken before. And, uh, um, it, it just, um, uh, I, I, I was kind of, uh, proud of myself for, you know, applying myself and making the grades and, uh, you know, and then after a while, I said, you know what, I, I uh, it's time for me to, um, you know, I got to go out and get a job and in the in the off season because I'd already blown my bonus. <laughs> so that's when I stopped uh, going to school and I lost it because if you sit out two years, you lose it. You were a catcher. I asked you at the top of the show, give me a Brett Boone scouting report. Give me a John McLaren scouting report as a young man. I could catch and throw. Um, I had a really good arm. I mean, I, I had a plus-plus arm. Um, I had a slow bat. I had some power. Uh, I tried to pull the ball. Uh, I actually was taught to swing down on the ball. Bob Lillis and Grady Hatton, um, we didn't have hitting coaches, but they when they came through, uh, you know, we were taught to swing down at the ball uh, to hit line drives. And then later on, uh, when I was getting to double A AA and triple A, I became good friends of Bull Watson, and he worked with me. And he was a great hitter, as you know, Brett. And for a strong man, he, he could hit a line drive out of the ballpark. And, um, um, you know, I look back at the 70, those players, you know, Tony Perez and Joe Morgan and Johnny Bench and, you know, of course, your dad. And, and, and man, those guys – they were so, so into playing the game right and uh, uh, so hard-nosed guys. I mean, it was – I think that's the purest baseball that I ever saw was in the 70s myself. Um, it was right at the end of Willie Mays' career, who I thought was the most exciting player I'd ever seen in my life. And, um, uh, you know, growing up in Houston and – Watching the Colt 45s turn into the Houston Astros, open the Astrodome up. Uh, it was it was an exciting time in baseball uh, uh, for me as a, as a as a kid growing up. You played pro ball until 1976, 75. You had 270 with 13 homers. Um, your last year was in AAA. As a ball player, as much as you loved the game. Um, which all of us, you know, as as young players that pursue a career in, in Major League Baseball do. Did you, in, in 1976, which was your last uh, minor league season, AAA, um, were you coming to a realization that I'm not going to make it as a player? Was the writing on the wall? How did that, how did that year end? The writing was, uh, looked like I was going to be a journeyman minor league player. And um, this is a good story, Brett. Um, my last year, Jim Beecham was our manager in Memphis. Our general manager was Denny McLean. And the team was bankrupt the 1st of August. We made the playoffs, and the agreement in the International League was we played all the playoff games in Syracuse. Bobby Cox was the manager of Syracuse, and we played all the playoff games up there, and they paid uh, the expenses, our meal money, hotel, and, and airplane fare. We played all the games there, and – they had a good team. They had Ron Guidry, and uh, uh, they had Jason Worth, stepdad, Dennis Worth, and uh, Jim Beatty. And 
so forth. And um, Pat Gillick actually met me there during the playoffs. He took me up in the stands and uh, asked me would I be interested in a non-playing position with the Toronto Blue Jays. He was the general manager. And he says, don't give me an answer now. Think about it. So about a week after the playoffs, I went home and he says, are you interested? And I said, I am. And I thought about it. And I knew that my, my aspiration from day one is play in the big leagues. Now I had to rethink things. I'm not going to be a player. If I was, it'd be for a cup of coffee. What do I do for a long, long-term baseball career? And I said, I'll start in the other uh, other side of the fence. And um, so I started off scouting, which gave me a great background. Uh, I scouted two years in Southern California, and I scouted two years in uh, Texas, free agents. And uh, it gave me uh, the perspective how to, uh, how to, how to uh, project. And one of the best stories I have during my time scouting was I, in 1980 when I was back in Texas, I saw – Springwoods High School play five times, and the number one pitcher on the team was, um, um, golly, uh, uh, Rick Lucan, who ended up pitching in the big leagues. Number two pitcher was Rainer Noble, who coached University of Houston uh, baseball team for eight years, and the third pitcher on the team, who I never saw pitch, was a heavy set first and third baseman named Roger Clemens, and I, I tell that story for guys that came late. This guy was not a good high school player, uh, went, went to a college league in Houston uh, uh, in between his uh, senior year and freshman year and went to San Jacinto Junior College, uh, started slendering down. His fastball improved. His technique improved. He used to watch Nolan Ryan pitch every game. He was at home at the Astrodome. He'd sit in the bullpen and watch him warm up, how he used his legs. And Roger Clemens uh, emulated uh, Nolan Ryan. Went to University of Texas, and the rest is history. Uh, I think you could you could argue, you know, because you hit off of him. He's he's one of the greatest pitchers of all time. Definitely, definitely, uh, he's in that handful. And, and then you look at the numbers. You know, I forget uh, Roger and, and what he. I, mean, I think he won seven Cy Young awards. And and to to be looking at him from the outside now, going, wow. You know, he's he's one hand. He's guys you count on one hand in the history of the game. So, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I think yeah. everybody out there, especially the guys that faced him for years and years, have have definitely that respect. You started off in Medicine Hat, I believe. You went to Utica, Kinston, Knoxville, old stomping grounds in, in the Carolina League, in the Southern League. What did you learn about managing? And I also, I want to second that question with, What's the difference between managing in the minor leagues and managing in the big leagues? Yeah, you know, uh, when I started managing in the minor leagues, um, uh, I wanted to get on a fast path to move. That's why I went to Columbia, South South America, and Venezuela. And I love going to those foreign countries. And I think when I was a young manager, we we had – we had a we had some tough teams there. Uh, we had a we had fifteen Latins on the team, and it, you know it, they're going through a transition of learning a new culture, a new a new uh, country, uh, eating different, and you know um, you know so it, it was a handful for these kids to, to, to absorb. And 
so I, I learned about Latin players because I played with them and I, you know, I respected them, how they loved the game. And when I started going down to their countries, I knew what they were all about. And, um, uh, I think I was over aggressive, uh, when I first started managing, I, I tried to make things happen and, you know, I'd hit and run a lot and probably hit and run into bad situations and bad counts. And, uh, um, you know, it started teaching me, teaching me patience and, um, you know, in the major leagues, um, you know, you, you, you just, you let them play, uh, these guys, you know, except for your young guys breaking in. And sometimes it takes young kids, as you know, two or three times going back and forth, getting used to the double and triple deck stadiums, uh, for them to get settled in. And, uh, um, I, I just think, you know, um, um, the best players in the world, you let them play. And uh, I, I always thought you, you try to have your veteran players run your clubhouse. You overlook things, but if it's done in a proper way, you got leadership in your clubhouse and you give them space. And like you said, I used to like to roam the clubhouse and then I would get out of there when they, when the whole team was showing up, uh, I, I would drop in, but you know, when I would walk through the clubhouse, I would, I would look for body language. And I can remember a couple guys, and I could give you names, but I don't want to. But there was a couple guys I would look for. And when they had long faces, uh, I went right over to them. And I said, how you doing, man? And, and see if they wanted to offer something. And one of them had a serious problem. And he told me. And I said, look, um, I would like for you to go in Lou Pinella's office and talk to him behind closed doors let him know what, what you're going through, uh, that, you know, you need a little space, uh, this, and, and it took some pressure off of him. You know, it was a, a situation at home for him and, uh, uh, he appreciated me, uh, keeping it confidential. I, I wasn't going to go tell Lou. I, I never did that. When I heard something in the clubhouse, that was the last person I was going to go tell. I, 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 um, uh, I would just go tell the player, I really, I, I really wish you could talk to Skip, you know, uh, um, he's, you know, you know, Lou, Lou was a, Lou was a, the ultimate competitor, but he had a big heart and he's very sensitive. And I, I've seen Lou cry plenty of times. And I'll tell you, it's touching. And, uh, um, um, that, that, that was, that was one of my main jobs was just to get the pulse of the clubhouse and, how we could, you know, get guys mentally ready to play that night and, um, you know, go out and compete. And uh, we just came short a couple times. But I'll tell you what, 95 and 2001, uh, those were as good as chemistry teams uh, I've ever been involved in. And I tell, I tell all my friends and anybody that asked me about those teams, I said, those two teams had talented players, but those two, two teams had character in the clubhouse. And the Dan Wilsons and the Mike Camerons and the Jay Buners and the Norm Charltons, uh, the Mike Blowers, uh, Ken Griffey Juniors. Uh, I mean, you know, we had a lot of personalities, but there was such great leadership inside those clubhouse. Yeah, it was. Uh, yeah, and, and you mentioned Lou, and and obviously we'll talk more about him. But uh, he was, he was, man, he was as tough as you could be. But but to this day, I tell people if, if that if Lou Pinella respects you as a ball player and respects you as a man, uh, 
he will take a bullet for you. And if Absolutely. he doesn't, and he's not going to play the, he's not going to play the, the, the soft, it's going to be some tough love. And he wants to see what you're made of. He wants strong men in that clubhouse. And, but, but if you get those two from him and, and I learned it in, in the long run, uh, he, he would do anything for you. And, uh, yeah. it, it was, yeah, he's, he's a good, good man. Um, finish managing, you head to the blue Jays and, and you had a lot of big leaguers along the way, Mac, I'm looking here. You got Boomer Wells and, and Cecil Fielder and Jimmy Key, yeah. Ceruto. You had the crime dog through the minor leagues. You get to the blue Jays. Oh yeah. Oh, After the was... night. You get I, to the I got blue a Jays. call from Pat Gillick in 85 in Knoxville. He says in Celsius, Fielder hit left-hand pitching. I said he can. So I called Celso Fielder in my office. He came, We were living in the same apartments in Knoxville. He came to my house. This is one of the warm stories that I've had in baseball. And I, I was the actually, actually one that named him Big Daddy. And um, so Daddy came over to my apartment. And I said, what Pop say? He says, you know, Mac, he says, uh, you know, we didn't have cell phones. He says, uh, I haven't had a chance to call him. So I said, look, uh, my phone was in the bedroom. I said, go back in the bedroom and, and call Pops and let him know. And I could hear him. I can hear it right now. He says, Pops, we're going to the big leagues. And um, my, my heart just started pounding. It was such a wonderful, wonderful, you know, I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't try to eavesdrop. I could just hear him talking in there to his dad. And you ask Cecil, you can ask him about that special moment that he had. And so daddy goes up to the big leagues the next day. It's a Saturday afternoon game games on TV. His first at bat, he hits one two feet from going out of the ballpark in exhibition stadium in Toronto. And he hits a double. And I was just, I was just jumping up and down. And the player that I got to take Cecil's place was Fred McGriff. So I, I was covered at first base in, in 85 in Knoxville. <laughs> You head to the Blue Jays in 86. You, you'll be there for the next five years. Jimmy Williams is a skipper. Uh, he was uh, succeeded by Cito Gaston late. Um, your third base coach. Now, in the minor leagues, when you were managing, was it back in those days, was the manager coach's third or it depended on the level you were at? Always manager coach third, yeah. Uh, in fact, in uh, spring training of 85, the first day of spring training, um, the clubhouse kid said that Pat Gillick wanted to see me along with Bobby Cox and uh, Jimmy Williams. And I said, oh, my goodness. I, I, you know, I didn't know what I did. I, I, and then I thought, well, I'm just coming from Venezuela. Maybe they want to ask about, you know, one of the players I had down there. So we sat down, and uh, uh, Pat Gillick says, uh, John, he says, we're trying to promote from within when we can, and we feel like we're going to lose Jimmy Williams. And he's already interviewed for two managerial uh, jobs. And he says, uh, we want to see what you can do coaching third base. So the, I, I, I almost coached the whole spring training in 85 uh, for the big league club. I went the last week. I went back to, to, uh, to the minor leagues to get ready for the season. And Jimmy talked to me and worked with me every day. I go back to Venezuela after the 85 uh, season. I get a call from uh, on the loudspeaker, I was out jogging the outfield uh, in Venezuela, and I went up to the office, and it was Pat Gillicks and Jimmy Williams, and Bobby Cox had gone back to Atlanta as general manager, and Jimmy Williams asked me, did I want to be his third base coach? And, you know, I, I finally made it, and it was, 
uh, I, I was so thrilled. I can't tell you. I finally made it to the big leagues. Yeah, it's cool. And I'm looking at the guys and then I, I look at them later. You know how we're going through our journeys in life. It, it, it's like, yeah, I know Mac and, and I've known Mac for a long time, but then you start to put things together, you know, Pat borders, uh, an un, kind of an unsung guy in those early two thousands for the Mariners. What an awesome teammate. I love Pat. He was at one time, a, a, a mainstay for the Toronto blue Jays. That's where you had met borders back in, back in the, uh, back in the late eighties. He's on those, those blue Jay teams, Tony Fernandez, one of my favorite teammates to date and the one and only big Rude who's one of my favorite human beings of all oh, time. Yeah. Of course, of course, I'm talking about John Olerud. Um, sure. 89, you got your first taste of the postseason uh, when you went up against um, who'd you guys, who'd you guys lose to in the, in the ALCS that year? Oakland, Oakland A's. That's Oakland when, uh, A's that went on and, and playing that. that. Hit one. That's when Conseco hit one in the upper deck in the Sky Dome. Right, the, one of the longest ever. Off Mike Flanagan. Yep. Yeah, those were great players. We had George Bell, Jesse Barfield, um, Lloyd Mosby. Uh, you know, we, we just – Kelly Gruber. Uh, Dave Steve was as good as pitcher I ever saw. I'm telling you, on a given day, he's the best pitcher I ever saw. He, his stuff was incredible. Uh, um, great competitor, great stuff, and – we had Buck Martinez and Ernie Witt, and um, it, it, it was great times, uh, Brad. I, I really, I really enjoyed those years in Toronto, and uh, you know, getting to uh, open up the Sky Dome, uh, it, it was pretty cool. And uh, um, we, we had good players, and we competed every year. And uh, um, you know, Pat, Pat. Pat Gillick was the man that um, put the, put those teams together, along with Bobby Maddock and Al Lamacchia, two of the top scouts in baseball. Yeah, and talking to Pat, uh, we had Pat on the on the program a few months back, and you know it was interesting talking to him, and then looking at his record, and it seemed like everything Pat touched. You know, I knew Pat from from that Mariner and that from the Mariners and the team he put together for us in the early two thousands, but he had yeah. done that several, several times. He, he'd built yeah. a winner and, and then moved on and then built another winner. It seemed like everything is yep. he touched uh, turned to gold and, and in the long run, he ends up being a hall of famer. So uh, pretty poignant there in 91, you go to the Red Sox just for a season. And those are the Clemens years and Boggs is there. Yeah. Mo he, won the Cy Young, he won the Cy Young that year. Yeah, how how did you uh, you were the you were the uh, I think you were the bullpen coach for the Red Sox. I was, and th- and this is one year before you'll you'll meet your your guy that you're going to hang with for a long time in Lou Pinella. Um, how was that year for you in, in as a Red Sox in Boston? Loved it. Um, passionate fans, cathedral of all ballparks. Um, being around Wade Boggs, um, um, Mike Greenwell. Uh, Tim Nearing, we, we had good players. Uh, we won 90 games, and uh, they let Joe Morgan go. And um, um, I was around Jeff Reardon. He's one of the most stand-up players I've been around in my life. I, I had, he's one of the guys that I've admired is 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 <clears throat> as much as any player I've been around. Uh, <laughs> he was a terrific closer. 
I remember he, he, he closed like 18 straight games and he gave up a triple, triple to Roberto Kelly uh, in the top of the ninth inning at the Yankees at Fenway Park. And the next day, it was Sunday, and he's walking out to the bullpen, and we're losing like 13 to nothing. But he, there he is, got his two towels underneath um, his arm with his glove, and the fans are just booing him to death. And I'm just thinking, can you people boo this guy? And, you know, he never, he never turned down an interview, and he was always straight up. And um, um, that was, that's some kind of ballpark, huh, Brett? It was always exciting to be there, whether you're at, uh, especially when you're a visitor, because the fans, you know, they, they'd push you to the limits. They'd yell at you. And, but it, whenever you did something that was good, they, they'd show you, uh, they'd show you respect and, and, and give you a hand. Um, I, I, it, it was, it was a special year and I enjoyed the one year, uh, with the Red Sox. From there, you head over to Cincinnati, and and uh, you're going to Marge Shot, <laughs> and the '92 Reds are coming off a World Series in 1990. Um, how did that relationship start with Lou? Because after that, the for the majority of your career, you've been with Lou Pinella. How yeah. did that? How did yeah. that come together? Well, uh, it's it's. Um... Uh, I, I'd known Lou, you know, scouting in the Toronto, nothing, didn't know him well, just say hi to shake his hand. And Boston let me go late. Uh, it was it was almost the first of November when they made a decision on uh, Joe Morgan. So there was one major league job open, and it was Cincinnati. And Larry Rothschild took Stan Williams' place being pitching coach. Rothschild was the uh, – bullpen coach and now he's the pitching coach and I called Al Lamaki and he called Lou Pinella for me. Lou Pinella called me after talking to me three to five minutes. He says, Mac, you got the job. He says, I, I, I like everything about you. And I love Cincinnati. All right, what a baseball town. I mean, they support their team. Uh, um, I, I like the area and, uh, I, I smile at one story I think about. Uh, we were having team photo day, Brett, and it's it's like 105 degrees. We're in center field, and we're waiting for Marge and the dog. And uh, Tom Browning had uh, sprained his ankle, so he's on crutches, and he's got a he's got a boot on. So here comes Marge, and and Tom Tom's about a third of the way out walking on his crutches and here comes Marge and the dog in a, in a golf cart. They almost run over Browning walking out to the team photo. They, they swerve to miss him. They, they, they get out of the golf cart, bring the dog over and Marge sits down. Now we got to wait for Tom to come another, another, another 300 feet to walk out there. And I'm thinking, is there any way, they could just pick Browning up on the way in the golf cart, but they didn't do it. So uh, I just – she came in one day, and, you know, we uh, we had a pretty good team. We won 90 games, I think, and uh, um, she came in, and um, she had cut some hair off Shotzi and, and threw it on the floor. That's when Tony Perez got up and walked out of the clubhouse. He says, I've seen enough here, and uh, – no, it was it was a good year, and uh, I just think I just think Lou had enough. He just uh, 
he was ready to move on. I think he was ready to sit out until Woody Woodward came and uh, approached him about going to Seattle. And, uh, um, boy, I'm, I think the Northwest is glad Lou came up there because I don't, they would, I don't, there wouldn't, there wouldn't be a team there. Um, if we didn't have the run in 95, like we had, they wouldn't have a new stadium and they'd probably be in Tampa Bay right now. When you first hooked up with Lou, what was your first position, Mac? I was in the bullpen that year. You're in the bullpen. You come to Seattle, 93 to the Kingdome. Uh, that was that was my rookie year, as as we talked about earlier. I'd come up in '92, and uh, you know I didn't I didn't do very well. I did typical, and and what 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 dawned on me when you were talking about young players and big leaguers and future big leaguers, uh, you see these this talent come to the big leagues, and I'm so impressed with players that come up the first time and just get it from the from from the get go. I mean, because that's so rare, especially a young player and some of the greatest players of our time usually isn't a one and done. You know, there are the Ken Griffey juniors of the world, the Mike Trouts that you currently a guy in Seattle, uh, Julio Rodriguez, that they come up and from the get go, they stick. But that's that's really usually not the norm. Usually most of us have to get beaten down a little bit, go back to the minor leagues kick butt in the minor leagues, come back up, take a, take a little bit more of a beating and, and go up and down a couple times before we really get the hang of it and make that adjustment to be a true big leaguer. Uh, so it's always impressive to me when, when guys do it from the get-go. But you're coming to Seattle. My first spring, all I remember that about that year, because you know, Mac, I, I was a little brash, was I, as a, as a young kid? <laughs> but, but at the yeah. same time, I just wanted to do good. You know, I was swinging hard, and that's how I had got through the minor leagues. I knew I had some growing up to do, some some work to be done. But, man, I just wanted to belong. I wanted to prove as fast as I could. And, and uh, right now wasn't fast enough for me. I had to show you now and tomorrow and the next minute and, and the next minute. And it's a lot of – it's, you know, things that a lot of us young players – but the one thing I had is is I always believed in myself, and I always believed I was going to be a great player. And, and if you were, weren't sure, just ask me. But uh, yeah, I had a lot of learning to do, and I had some tough love from Lou. I mean, you remember those those drag out? I had some drag out fights. I remember I was the heir apparent, right? They told me, hey, you're replacing Harold Reynolds. He's moving on. And, and I remember the point was you said uh, – that particular year was Peoria, Arizona, and the main complex wasn't built yet, so we had to play every it was game. Actually, on the road. It was actually where the Padres are now, and we built our complex across from it. So we actually where the Padres are now. That was our first year, right? Uh, but we didn't have a main, we didn't have a stadium, so we had to play we every game. Now we played every on game on the road. And I went. You know what I did, Mac? I Lou had me on every single trip for the entire spring training. And I I think I pretty much started every game. And I remember the last game and it was, uh, we were playing against the, the Oakland A's and it was just about, you know, getaway day. And you know how the older players, they, they have a little bit better sense than the young players of how the club shaping up, who's going to make the team, who's not. And I remember, you know, it ended up being one of my best buddies, Mike Blowers, who was, you know, on the bubble. He'd been one of those guys going up and down and I wasn't starting the final game. 
and I'm sitting on the bench and I'm looking around, you know, and I feel like people looking at me a little bit. And I, and I turned to Blow and I said, Blow, what's going on? Why aren't I starting? I've started every game this spring training. And he kind of just looked at me and kind of went, well, you might not be making the team. And I just thought to myself, how dare you tell me? Don't you know I'm the heir apparent? <laughs> but he kind of was being honest with me. He, he had a little bit of a pulse on, on what was going on. You know, those veteran players, he was in with kind of the yeah. older players. And they knew what was going on. And I remember sitting there that day, and I didn't play. And now my mind's starting to wander. And I'm going, what the hell is going on? I'm the second baseman. We get back to camp, and I don't remember if it was you or somebody else. But sure enough, I got the tap on the shoulder that said, Skip wants to see you. And I went in, and he said, Booney, hey, I think you're going to be a big leaguer for a long time. But but right now, I think you need a little more seasoning. <laughs> and I'm looking at him like, does this guy know who he's talking to? <laughs> you know, we're so naive at, that, uh, at those young ages. We have yeah. no idea yeah. what's about to hit us. And I remember not knowing what to do. Uh, I went home. I was planning on going to Seattle starting opening day and the next thing you know i find myself back back in calgary and on that shuttle and i got called up and i got sent down and i got called up and me and lou got in a fight and i got sent down uh that whole 93 season was funny but i remember being in the kingdom and and uh and lou (laughs) were playing the Cleveland Indians, I think. And I think I'm having a pretty good game. I'm, I'm two for three. I think it's the very beginning of the season. I'm hitting three something. And I all I remember is Eric Plunk coming into the game. It's late in the game. Uh, runner on third, less than two outs. And, and Lou, like in spring training, when he, when he made me go run, he expects you to do a job when a job's there to be done. I, I To be honest with you, I think it's the only way to play the game. If there's a runner on third, uh, a hit is a bonus. If you've got to hit an eight hopper to the shortstop infield back, that's what you do to get that run across. And I ended up, Eric Plunk pitched me real tough, and I ended up chasing a a fastball out of the zone, striking out and coming back to the dugout. Lou looking at me and saying, son, what the hell are you swinging at? I mean, this is in the heat of the battle. Of course, as a player, yeah. I'm feeling as bad as anybody at the time. And I remember kind of throwing my bat and go, hey, Skip, you forget how hard it is to play this game? What do you think happened that night? Uh, yeah, Booney, Lou wants to see I get sent down again. <laughs> and, man, it was a back and forth, and uh, it was a learning process. And and it was, it was tough love, but uh, – in the end, looking back, I, now I know why it had to be that way, and, and it ended up being the best thing for me in the long run. And uh, it, it's not fun when you're going through it, but it makes you stronger, and, it, it, and it, it teaches you life lessons on the way. What do you remember about that 93 season? And, and, and I, could, I laugh at myself. I laugh at that yeah. 21-year-old Brett Boone. I laugh at that 22-year-old, well, but what did you remember? Remember, we didn't know each I, other. We didn't know each other I, too well until that season. I remember it like it was yesterday. It was the second or third you got sent down, and, and you, you point at me, and, and you're motioning me to come over. Okay, Mac, y'all want to play this game? I'm going back to the Calvary Cannons. I'll go down there like y'all want me to. I'll, I'll do my time. And he says, when I come back, I'm never going back again. I said, well, that's the attitude to have. So you come back, and I think we're in Detroit, and we're on the plane. I don't know if we're going to Detroit or coming back from Detroit, but I remember Detroit in my mind. 
and you're playing cards with Blowers and Randy and a couple guys, and you say, Mac, let's do this a little bit different this time around. He says, um, I can't remember if you told me to bat Edgar in front of you or behind you. He says, <laughs> you, he says you, run, you rum dums, let's get it right this time. Put Edgar behind me, protect me, and he says, we'll start a, a nice long career. I said, you got it, buddy. <laughs> and I walked off like I'm going to go tell Lou. I never said a word to Lou about that. But uh, uh, the 93 season uh, – there was a lot of people up and down. Oh my God! I mean, it was uh, it was a it was a revolving door, especially with the pitchers. You know, guys. You know, they'd pitch two or three bad games, and Lou would tell Woody, "Okay, I see enough of him. Who else you got?" And it just, you know, that's what you do when you when you come to a new organization. You're trying to change the culture to a winning organization. You let people know that, you know, there you you got to produce and. You know, that goes for everybody. And um, um, it was it was quite a year. And then, of course, in 94, we ended up having the strike and leaving early and all that kind of stuff. But um, uh, it was a transition. Uh, you know, the kingdom was a different place. And uh, um, uh, I, I, I got really warm memories about the kingdom, to be honest with you. Uh, I remember one day in the clubhouse, Brett, you know, Henry Zanzali was our clubhouse guy, and he was a great guy. So we ended up blowing a game. And back in those days, all the food wasn't catering. Uh, you know, Henry would be, be open cans of uh, barbecue beans and, uh, you know, whatever. So he's got all these trays on the table in the middle of the clubhouse. And he's got those little uh, little fire warmers to keep everything warm. So Lou come in there, and he's throwing a fit. And he drop kicks one of the tables, and one of those little 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 lighted things falls on the floor, and the carpet catches on fire. And someone grabs a pitcher of milk and pours it to put the fire out, and it was the worst stink I've ever smelled my life. <laughs> so. Whenever Lute say get the team together, I'd say guys stay away from the from the from the buffet table because you don't know what's going to happen when he comes in here. But I, you know, one thing about Luke Brett is there is not any false pretense about the fire inside of him to win. It was there was nothing nothing fake about it. He was a true glad, gladiator, and I always compared Lou to three people. Billy Martin, win. I don't care what it takes to win, win. George Steinbrenner, lead, follow, or just get out of the way. And the last guy was Casey Stingle because Lou was just like Casey. He was witty. He was smart. He was funny as hell. Uh, I mean, he could entertain the, the media as good as anybody. And I've always, I always told people that Lou and those three guys roll into one. It, and you had some special teams, uh, that 95 team. And and to this day, you know, I, I was just having a conversation. I forget who I was talking to. We were talking about great lineups in, in the game and, and Cleveland Indians of the 90s uh, comes oh to mind. And, and the Texas Rangers had some real offensive oh, yeah. teams. Didn't have the pitching. 
But then I reminded him, I said, don't forget about that mid-90s Seattle Mariner team. And this is before Tino went to uh, went to the Yankees. But you had yes. Ed, Edgar and Junior, the best player I ever played with. You had a young Alex Rodriguez coming up. Uh, Jay Buhner, yeah. uh, blow. But it, but it was like, that was some thunder. The problem is, you had Randy Johnson. And then you didn't have that much after. And I'm not saying that much, not to disrespect the pitchers of that time. Yeah. But you didn't yeah. have a stopper after Randy Johnson. Randy Johnson could can stop you in your tracks. And to be honest with you, I played defense behind Randy Johnson. He's the most dominant. When Randy was on, he was the most dominant pitcher I've ever played behind. And I and I had the, the privilege of playing behind Maddox Moltz and Glavin in 1999. On a given yeah. night, if he had his stuff, I've never seen anybody more dominant through a lineup, right-handed, left-handed. I don't care who you are. If Randy's on, you've got little to no chance. Talk about those guys yeah. a little bit on those mid-90s teams. Yeah, I, I got to agree with you. First time I saw Edgar Martinez was 1984. He was in Chattanooga, and I was managing Knoxville. This was a third baseman that could run a little bit, he was a line drive hitter. He had zero power. The best hit and run guy in the league. I put him down as the best hit and run guy in the league. Good third baseman with a strong arm. He was kind of a slender guy. And, you know, I put my report needs to get stronger. Boy, did he get stronger. Uh, best right-hand hitter I ever, I'd ever saw uh, in, in uh, uh, over 30 years I had in the big leagues. Uh, by far the best. When you see the opposing team, Sitting in the dugout, watching him hit his round, uh, his 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 uh, group of hitting, and then get up and all go to the clubhouse. That's total respect. What they thought about Edgar, Jay Buner was one of the strongest farm type players I ever seen. Natural natural God given strength. I mean he he wasn't a big weight room guy. He was just a burly strong man. Griffey, what can I say, could do it all. He was a highlight film every single night in every phase of the game. And um, Tino was Tino was this tough player I, I'd ever coached. I mean, he, was, he, he came to play. That guy was a great competitor, but he was quiet. And that was, that was one guy I would never, ever want to mess with. And you mentioned Mike Blowers. I always tell people this story about Blower Power. I, I love Mike. And the first spring training, he had a third baseman's glove, a first baseman's glove, an outfielder's glove, and then we gave him a catcher's mitt and catching gear. And he hits 30 home runs or something. So the next spring I walk over to him and I said, um, you got all your gloves and your catching equipment? And he says, not this year, Mac. I'm the third baseman. I, I loved it. Just the way he, you know, I, I was just razzing him, but the way he came back to me and said that um, was comical. And, and I've got a story about you similar. In 2001, Lou mentioned to me, he says, you know, to make this lineup work, uh, you know, every now and then we got to put Mac Lamore in at second. Um, tell Boone to take some grounders at third. So I go out to the clubhouse and I said, uh, Hey, Booney, I said, uh, why don't you take a few grounders at third base? He said, you look at me, he says, what are you rum dumbs thinking now? I'm the best second baseman in baseball. I'm a gold glove second baseman. You're going to tell me to take ground balls at third base? 
So I told, you, uh, I told Lou, you go take him, Lou. I told, I told Lou, and he just laughed. Yeah, he says that was a dumb idea. She says, forget it. You don't need to take ground balls at third. <laughs> That's that sounds like me, and I would say that. I'd say, hey Mac, why don't you go tell Lou to go take ground balls at third? Because I'm not gonna. Uh, I think you. I think you said that. I think you said that. You know, one thing about those guys. Uh, I mentioned Mark McLemore, one of my all-time favorites. Uh, when he what a great, Angels, what a big, what a big part of our team he was. Oh my God! I when he played for the uh, Angels, I couldn't stand him. I thought he was a hot dog. Uh, you know, I just couldn't stand him. When he came over with us, he was a junkyard dog. I mean, this guy—you talking about getting the trenches and get after it? When he wasn't playing, he'd be in the video room. Uh, you know, in those days, we did it the professional way. We, we'd pick up signs as good as anybody. We relayed them professionally and uh, didn't make a mockery of the game. And uh, whoever wasn't playing that day would go in the video room with Carl Hamilton. And they and Mackey would come back and say, oh, I got him, Mac. I got him. They were easy. I got him. I got him. And he just, he'd have the biggest smile on his face. He's not playing, but being the leader he is, he's doing what he can to help win games. And he could play all positions. And, um, uh, you know, I just think of him and Mike Cameron. You know, when we traded Griffey, uh, you know, Lou called me. He says, yeah, we didn't have any choice in this deal. He says, what do you know about Cameron? I said, well, I said, Lou, he's pretty, pretty dang good outfielder. And, you know, he's got some pop. He strikes out. And he came in the clubhouse and he had this, oh, my God, this, energizing uh, uh, smile and, you know, he's a bubbly personality and um, <clears throat> and we didn't miss a beat with him in center field. I mean, Griffey was a gold glover, but i tell you what, Mike wasn't that far behind him and Mike did a great job in center field and um, um, just a terrific person. And I, I got a great story about Cameron. I, I'm not sure if you were with the team, Brett, but uh, he bought – a Mercedes from one of our teammates. And I'm not going to mention the teammate's name. And the teammate was evidently paying this car off, but Cameron had paid him cash for it. So the guy put the money in his pocket, was making the payment, evidently was late on the payment. So we're taking batting practice. And I look out in the parking lot and there's a tow truck and they're towing Cameron's Mercedes. And I said, I said, Cammy, I said, they're taking your Mercedes out of the parking lot. So Mike is sprinting from one field across the field, going to the parking lot. And, and the guy's hauling, hauling his, uh, his Mercedes out of the parking lot. And when the whole story was told, uh, that's exactly what happened. The teammate wasn't paying the payments uh, on the, on the car. <laughs> and they finally resolved that. But Mike had like 20,000 in his bag and he never got that back. And, um, you know, Mike's still working with the uh, minor leaguers over there, working with Julio Rodriguez. And uh, Dan Wilson's still with the Mariners. And uh, Dan Wilson, what a guy. I, I mean, this guy was one of the stabilizers on our club for years and years. Smart guy, studious. You know, I had him when he broke in in 92 with Cincinnati, and then we trade for him. And, you know, Lou is always on the catchers, I mean, hard, and the pitching coaches and third base go anyway. So 
he's all over Dan. So uh, the next day I see Dan, I take him in the Henry's office uh, there in the kingdom. I said, uh, Dan, do you respect me? Oh, yeah, Mac. He says, I totally respect you. I said, can you do me one favor? He says, anything you want. I said, when Lou gets on you, tell him to go screw himself. But I put it more more strong words than that. He said, oh, I can't do that, Mac. He says, I respect Lou too much. I said, all you got to do is defend yourself. He'll leave you alone. Well, Dan did it his way, and Lou let let him let him run the ball club, and he did a great job uh, being the captain of the team. He 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 was as good as teammate I've ever been around. Uh, big Dan Wilson fan here. Big Dan Wilson fan. That brings us to the to the uh, early two thousands, and obviously those great teams that you were a part of. You the bench coach there. Uh, and then now it's Edgar and it's Norm Charlton and Buner's there for his last year in 01. Uh, you've got Dan Wilson, who you mentioned, and, and some of my favorite guys. Cammy's still to this day one of my favorite guys. You had old man Moyer, yeah. Jamie Moyer, and uh, big Fred, Freddie Garcia, who was who was the ace of our staff in, in 01. And one of my favorite guys, and, and you remember him sitting next to me, played a long time. But but you, in the early 2000s, he was just getting his feet wet. He was just getting in the big leagues. Willie Bloomquist. It, and I used to love when you'd come to my locker and, and you know, you'd give me the you got a minute boon and you'd talk to me. Uh, you were trying to get word to Bloomquist, but you pretend that he's not there. And you'd say, hey, hey, Booney, yeah. uh, could you ask Bloomquist how he's feeling today? And I'd turn to Bloomquist and say, Mac wants to know how you're feeling. <laughs> well, tell Mac I'm all right. <laughs> And remember, yeah. I'd ask you, I'd say, Willie, because he was a utility player on that on that Seattle Mariner team and loved by his teammates. And he'd come to me all the time. He'd be like, Booney, when do you think I'm going to play next? When do you think I'm going to play? I'm like, wait, wait till Mac comes out here. We'll figure it out. And I used to tell you, hey, Mac, uh, young Bloomquist here wants to know when the next time he's playing. And, and you'd look at me with that look and you'd go, you know what, Boney? Let me get back to you on that. You'd come back 15, 20 minutes later and say, uh, once again, speaking through me to get to Bloomquist, who's about five feet away from me, you'd say, yeah, uh, yeah. tell young Bloomquist, if I were him, and this is just hypothetical, if I were him, I'd be ready to go on Thursday. And I'd say, Mac, I'll pass the message. <laughs> you'd walk out of the room. I'd yeah. say, Willie, Max says, be ready Thursday. That pretty much tells me, talk to Lou, and you're playing Thursday. You say, all right, all right. And on Thursday, come Thursday, you know, because we all used to get there pretty early. I'd get to my locker, and, and Willie would already have his uniform on. <laughs> and he goes, Booney, I'm playing today. And I loved Willie for that. And, and I yeah. think it served him well over time. You know, here's a guy that played all over the ballpark, was never an everyday player. And the next thing you know, you look up 16 years later, and he's got 16 years in the big league. That's a tribute to him. And, and not only the perseverance, but, but the right attitude. You know, if you're going to play one of those roles and you're going to be a utility player, it takes a certain type of person. You don't just roll out with a bad attitude. You know, you, you do it the right way. That's how you stick around for a long time. Willie, uh, I was as proud of him because he leaned on me a lot when he was a young player. And I, and I tried to, to give him the best advice I could give him as a, as a veteran player at the time. And when I went and saw him and say, I saw him in San Diego right at the end of his career. And, and part of me was really proud. Like, wow, this guy was sitting here. He didn't know if he was coming or going in 2001. Anytime he get tapped on the shoulder, he could go back to AAA. And the next thing you know, he's got 16 years in the big leagues. It, it was pretty awesome to see. You know, uh, 
I was coaching in Philadelphia in 2017, and we're getting ready to have a meeting, and I'm sitting right next to Larry Bowen like I did every morning, and the phone rings, and it's a 602 number. And I said, well, let me take this. And uh, it was Willie, and he says, uh, Mac, you got a minute? I said, yeah, Willie, uh, what's going on? He says, uh, uh, I said, wait a minute, let me walk out of this, this, this room real quick. So I walk in the hallway, he says, Mac, uh, I want to thank you. Um, you were my manager in Seattle, but the main thing is when I broke into big leagues, you helped me adjust and it meant a lot to me in my career. And um, I'm retiring today and I, I just, I'm reaching out to people that played a part in me uh, uh, having, having a great career in the big leagues. And I, I had tears in my eyes. I mean, he didn't have to do that, but that's what a class guy is. I, I, I've always said that I thought Willie would be a great ma- major league manager. And I still believe that, but you know, he might be at Arizona state for a long time. Uh, he loves Arizona state. He's there now and he's doing a great job. Uh, this is actually his first full recruiting year and, uh, he's got some good players coming in there and, uh, I follow his team close and, uh, I know great things going to happen at Arizona state with him leading, uh, the charges over there. I want this segment to be a little bit about just we're going to isolate, we're going to hone in on that 2001 season. So special, so many great players. We wrote it together. It didn't end up the way we wanted to, but uh, I'll open it up with first of all how funny it was with the Lou Lou situation. You know, I'd played for him early. I come back, and we're rolling that year. I mean, we're you were there for the ride. I, I call it the mar- magic carpet ride because we just didn't lose. Uh, might have been our problem in the long run, taking for granted yeah. series because we yeah. had won so much. Uh, but I remember early had, in this, we never had any pressure on us. We 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 had we 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 had things wrapped up in June, just about. I mean, we we were phenomenal. I mean, it was just uh, it didn't it didn't it make a difference we got behind or not. And uh, just one little note to that season: we won 116 games. We're winning 10, 10 to nothing one night in Cleveland on a Sunday night ESPN game. And, and uh, I didn't play in that game. Yeah, yeah, I tell you what, uh, Lou, Lou, Lou got mad at me because Cleveland had unloaded their starters. They took everybody out, and Lofton was over there. He was throwing things because they didn't, they didn't take him out of the game. They took all the other players out. And I said, well, Lou, they took their players out. It's up to you. So we say, he, he told me, he said, don't ever tell me to take players out of the game again. And you know what? It's just, it's a principle thing. You, you, you want one of your best players to get hurt when you win in 11 to one, you know, I mean, and it's a chance to give young players a chance to play. And, you know, it just, it just didn't work out that night. You know, I mean, we just, we, we just gave the game away and, uh, that's one of the that's one of the all time comebacks. Still played on, on Major League Baseball classics. And you know what I remember, Mac, about early in that year. Let's let's call it May. You know, because a lot of the press they'd always come around my locker because we, you know, I I gave press conferences all the time, and I remember them coming to me in May, and they said, you know, Brett. Uh, since you were around the first time and, and Lou is the way Lou is, he's really mellowed out, you know, later in his career, he's matured as a manager. And I laughed to him. I said, listen, 
I'll tell you what, yeah. he wins every single night. If he can't be mellow in this atmosphere, there's yeah. no, there's nothing to be mellow about that. That was the thing. And I would tell Lou that, cause you know, my, my relationship with Lou was, was completely different as a veteran player versus as a rookie. Like I said, my favorite no all time guy, and I could say anything to him. He would, I mean, we'd sit there and have Mac. I've told this story so many times, Lou in, in, uh, we're playing in Oakland and he says, you know, I'd played about 40, 50 in a row. And he said, Booney, I'm going to give you a day off. And, uh, you know, in the next couple of days, I said, absolutely not skip. I said, I play, I'm locked in. You just leave me alone. All right. All right. And, you know, I had the, I had the, his, you know, he, he'd let me kind of do what I wanted to do at that stage of my career. And I remember (laughs) playing, I played this day game and Lou wanted to give me a day off. And I, I insisted on playing and I went up my first bat. I think I popped up to the catcher. I came back to the dugout. Nothing was really said. Uh, I come back my second at bat and I think I struck out. So I'm 0 for 2. And I just remember Lou, and this is so Lou. He stood up mid game, walked down the dugout, looked at all the players and said, Listen, if you guys are waiting on Boone today, you're going to be waiting a long time because he's supposed to have a day <laughs> off and he ain't got it. And I'll tell you what, I looked at him yeah. and what could I do except for smile? Things were going so good for us at the time. Right. He had told me that he wanted me to have a day off and it put pressure on me for the rest of the game. So I'm going to sit there. I got to get some hits so I don't, so I can live this down. I end up going 0 for 4. We lose the game. I walked to him in the in the clubhouse after the game. I said, Skip, I'll make a deal with you. I said, you know I don't like days off, but the next time you give me a day off, I'm going to accept it because I, I can't handle putting up with this crap. And he started laughing. He goes, you got a deal, Booney. And I, and I think he gave me a day off about, you know, the next day probably, but then, you know, played two months straight. But uh, that's what I remember. But what do you remember most about our winning and and just that team as a whole? You know, Brett, in the spring training in 95, <clears throat> we started off replacement baseball, which was a real sore spot. Um, uh, it just it just wasn't right, you know. I mean, we, nobody wanted to be there. Um, we didn't have any choice as coaches. We, we, we had to coach the guys that were there. And so we finally show up late, and you guys show up, and – um, we didn't know, we didn't know, um, what kind of team we're going to have. And then we go to 2001 is the same situation. We didn't know what kind of team we had. We re-signed you, we re-signed Ichiro, but you think about it. In 98, we trade Randy Johnson. In 99, we traded Ken Griffey Jr. In 2000, A-Rod left as a free agent. We lost the three best players in baseball, and now we're going into 2001, and we don't know what we have. And we got this kid, Ichiro, who we, we had in spring training in 99 for four days. Uh, but, you know, that's a big difference in caliber of baseball, uh, Japan and here. Uh, there have been very few position players uh, that, that could actually succeeded uh, in Japan that came over here and succeeded. So, you know, as you remember, he wore third base out in batting practice. I mean, during the games. He was hitting line drives over third base dugout time after time again. And Lou's saying to me, he says, 
Mac, you've been here three weeks with this guy because he came down to spring training early and Gillick had me come to the complex every day and I worked him out and threw him batting practice and that was my first introduction to the Japanese media. 90 of them every day watching him taking batting practice asking me questions every day afterwards. So um, we're walking out of the clubhouse and there's Ichiro walking out the same time and Ted Hyde, our international guy, was with him and he says, Chad, ask this guy if he ever turns on the ball. And you remember this. And, oh, yeah. um, Ichiro says, yeah, sometime. So, Lucy, I'd like to see it. You know, I, I just like to see if you could pull the ball, son. You know, I just, I've never seen it. So we start the game and he hits one up in the fern. I mean, he crushes ball down into right field. He comes back to the dugout and he's taking his helmet off. He looks at Lou right in his eye. I'm sitting right next to him. He says, is that pull ball, Lou? Just like that. So I asked Ichiro um, later on, I said, what happened? You got bat speed. I've thrown batting practice. So, yeah, you know, I had a pretty good arm, Brett, and I'd cheat to throw in harder inside his hands. I knew he had bat speed. He says, Mac, I've never seen power sinker like they have in the United States. I don't know any of these pitchers. So I'm fouling off every pitch just to try to look at major league pitching. I mean, he was so far ahead of the game. He was an intelligent player. And, um, uh, again, you know, um, I, this is something that we could debate and I'm sure it doesn't, you know, I'm sure you're proud of Ichiro, but you had an MVP year in, uh, in 2001, um, you had 40 home runs and 100-something RBIs. Giambi had a absolutely monster year also, and I think it's the clo- closest MVP vote in the history of the voting, and you and Ichiro split votes in Seattle. And, um, um, you know, uh, I've been asked about it many times, and I'm good friends of Ichiro's, and I'm good friends of yours, and I just said Ichiro was our table setter, and, and Brett Boone was our uh, steak and potatoes guy. And I said, you know, Ichiro got on and, and Brett knocked him in. And I said, uh, um, it's whatever side of the, uh, the the coin you want to be on. I said, they're both MVPs. But I said, 140 RBIs is hard to overlook. And uh, that, no question that was some kind of year for you. It was just a phenomenal year uh, that you had and him and as, and, and as a team, uh, it was just a fabulous year. Yeah. I think it's, it's something, you know, I, this, this particular season, you know, the Yankees got off to that start and a lot of the shows I do and I'm getting calls going, Hey, do you think they're going to win at one sixteen? I said, Absolutely not. I said, that'll never happen in our lifetime. And they said, well, you guys did it. I said, I don't know why we were chosen. We were a great team. We had all stars. We had, uh, we had um, silver sluggers. We had batting champs on that team. We had gold glovers on that team. And we were a great yeah. team. But there was something at play more than just being a great team. There was something special. We were chosen to win 116. I don't think it'll ever be done again. I mean, like you said, we had so many good I players. I was worried about the Dodgers this year. I want to. I want to tell you something. I I went to sleep every night seeing how they did. I, I they they put a little scare into me to be honest with you because they were on such a roll and. Uh, 
It's just amazing, though. It's amazing. You, you mentioned that Cleveland game. We lost the last game of the season. You know, we we ended up getting the 116 against Texas, and I think Lou rested a lot of us the next day. Uh, couple that with that with that Cleveland unbelievable comeback game. That's 118. If, if we're putting it, but yeah. it was what it was. I think all of us would trade those 116 wins anytime uh, for for a world championship, but but it wasn't meant to be. When it came to Lou and all the years that you were with him, uh, he was pretty loyal to certain guys. I, I mean, he liked his guys. Matty Sinatra was there start to finish. Yeah. John McLaren, one of my favorite all-time guys, Lee Elia, uh, yeah. always was in Lou's kind of, I don't know what I'd call it in that inner circle and and Lou loved these guys. And and it seemed like wherever he'd go, uh, he'd always try to take care of as many guys as he could. Uh, Oh, uncle Lee, Lee to this day. Do you remember Mac when, when Lee, he was a part-time guy with us in the early two thousands with the Mariners, Dan Wilson. It was almost like he was Dan's personal hitting coach, but man, he helped me a lot as well. Just with, with, just passing on a little bit of knowledge. Do you remember the day that Lee showed up with it with his hairpiece? Yeah, I do. <laughs> one of the great. It's one of the greatest days of all time. I look at Lee Ilya and he he walks in. I mean, from one day to the next, he's got. He goes from balding to full head of hair the next day, and he's sitting yeah. in the cage. I walk in, and I look at him, and he's got this on, and I'm thinking, he's not serious, right? Like he's, 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 it's Halloween or something. And I look at, I look at him. He's just looking at me sitting on the bucket of balls. Like, Booney, we ready to work. I said, you're not serious with that hair. He goes, what are you talking about? I said, what do you mean? What am I talking about? You, you have a full head of hair. He goes, yeah, I think it looks good. I said, are you serious with that thing? He goes, yeah, I am. One of the greatest, he could give a rat's butt what Brett Boone thought. He was looking good. And he loved it. I think years later, he got rid of it. But one of my favorite guys, Lee Ilya, and you remember. Absolutely. Absolutely. Lee, Absolutely. Lee's known for that tirade in, in Chicago when he was managing there. They got caught on tape. Still, uh, to the listeners out there, if you ever have a time, Google Lee Ilya and the tirade. It's a yeah. classic. He, he oh, was a coach was on, on my dad's Phillies team. So I knew Lee as a kid. Then I got to to be with him as, as a big leaguer. And to this day, one of the best hitting coaches out there as far as the mental side of the game and just finding a way to to get in your head a good thought for that next at bat, at least one of the true pros. Yeah. What was it about Lou that, that he kept that inner circle and really wanted to keep his core guys with him wherever he went? You know, I think it was his upbringing, upbringing Brett, um, such a loyal guy. And I, I think it was like the neighborhood he grew up in. Um, his main competitor growing up was Tony LaRusso. They played against each other from Little League uh, up through high school. And Tony was a bonus baby of the Kansas City A's. And um, Lou, Lou didn't get the $100,000 bonus like Tony get, got. So to, Lou was always motivated. Um uh, that that always lit a fire into him, and he was a gr- always a great competitor. Because I I talked to a lot of the people he grew up with, and he was always a little bit of a hothead, uh, but he was always motivated to be the best. And um, I just think because of his family and his uh, Spanish background that 
you know, they all grew up in this neighborhood and he considered us family. He told me, um, uh, Brett, to let you know, I got a message from Lou last week and he's, he's had some health issues and he let, he, he left me a really nice message, apologized not getting back to me. And, uh, he just said that, you know, he'd had some health issues, but, um, uh, his doctors assured him that he's, he's, he's doing well and he's going to be fine. And I just, I texted him back and I said, you just tell me when you're, you're, you feeling good, I'm going to fly in and uh, we're going to have a nice dinner together. And I, and I, and I'll, I'll end up, uh, I'll do that. Uh, I'll, uh, I'll fly to Tampa as soon as he tells me that, uh, he feels strong enough. He's got to build his strength up right now. But, um, um, I just, you know, when I, when I think back of all the times together with Lou and, uh, <clears throat> the way we competed, um, it was war every night. I mean, there was just one thing on everybody's mind is to win that game. And, um, uh, I, I don't know if those type of, uh, personalities will, will, um, be in our game like that, like, like Billy Martin and Lou Pinella and Earl Weaver and those type of guys. I just don't know if those type of guys, uh, uh, will be, uh, in the mix, um, like they were before. And they certainly deserve a big kudo of what they've done in our game and to set the foundation to, to have the game we have today is the, the way they went about their jobs during that era that they, that, that they were. And I, I respect all those men so much the way they, they carried on Sparky Anderson, uh, Dallas green, all, all them guys that, that were, it was all about baseball, Brett. That's, that's all they cared about. Um, winning baseball games and communicating. And um, to me, that's what makes the game go around is the communication in the game. That, that, that will never change for me. I, I just think it's such a valuable part of our game. In 06, Mac, uh, you become a race scout. You coach the WBC for Team USA. And in 2007, you're headed back to Seattle, your old stomping grounds. And you're the bench coach under Mike Hargrove, a gentleman I played for in 2005. And midseason, you get your shot. Hargrove walks away, and you're you're named the manager in the middle of 07. That'll last a year. What's going through your mind at that point? Because I remember you calling me, and I said, "Mac, you've been in this game a long time, man, and and you're and and I'm really happy to see you getting this opportunity. Were you prepared for it? How was it? Would you learn? What would you do different, or or would you not change a thing? Well, obviously, I wasn't prepared for it. In one in one respect, is I I had a rotator cuff operation the day before. I mean, if I had any any idea that I was going to be the manager. I certainly wouldn't have had a rotator cuff operation, but I had studied the game. Um, Lou, Lou had offered me a contract to go to, to the uh, Cubs with him, of course, and um, toughest phone call I ever, I ever had to make in my life was to call Lou and tell him. I, when I called him, Brett, I said, Lou, and he says, oh, Mac, he says, oh, we're going to do this, we're going to do that, and Oh, this is going to be great. Uh, did you sign your contract? My, I slew. I, I'm going back to Seattle, and there was a silence about five seconds, and it seemed like five minutes. And uh, 
my heart was, I'm sitting right in the seat at when I called him. I'm up in my office upstairs now in the same seat. And my, my heart was pounding so hard. Uh, I knew I had to call him. Uh, uh, I, I had agreed with Seattle and I was going back and a couple of things went through my mind. Um, is I, I wanted to be on, on my own. Uh, I wanted to, uh, show people that, um, I had learned from Lou Pinella that I could help another manager. And I thought I could help Mike Hargrove. And I did. Uh, I mean, we won 10 straight when he resigned. I, I talked to him an hour in the office trying to talk him out of it. I, I, I just, I didn't want, I didn't want the job that way at all, Brett. I mean, I was, um, I hadn't been named manager yet, but he told me, he said, I'm pretty sure they're going to name you manager, but I didn't want it like that. I, I, I wanted to interview for a job and have a big press conference. And, you know, the, the, the way you, you usually go about taking over, uh, you know, a new job, but I, I didn't get that opportunity. And, uh, we actually finished, finished really strong in 2007 and we'd have made the playoffs, uh, if, uh, uh, <clears throat> if they had the playoff system, the way they do now. And then the way they added that extra team later on. Um, and then we went into 2008 and it just, it just didn't happen. We just, um, it seemed like, uh, we just, we couldn't get it going. And, uh, there was a lot of guys that were at the end of their careers and, um, you know, they let me go and I understood it. I was disappointed. I thought I'd get another chance. I never did. And, uh, no regrets. Uh, I did the best job I could. Uh, we had some good players. Uh, Adrian Beltry is going to be a hall of famer is a hall of famer. Uh, um, um, you know, of course, it's Rowe and, uh, um, Felix Hernandez was tremendous. Um, uh, like I said, there were some nice pieces in place and it was just, uh, they had to go through a transition after that. But, um, I enjoyed going back to Seattle. I think a lot of them, I'm following them close now, tough game yesterday. And, um, uh, it just, uh, you know, it just didn't happen in 2008. Jimmy Riggleman replaced you good friend of yours and then vice versa in 2009 with the nationals jimmy riggleman's the manager he brings you in as his bench coach so it's kind of a role reversal you finish out with the phillies in in 2016 and 2017 and i wanted to ask you you have a lot of i mean you've done so many things mac and i want to talk about the international play i mean i'm going over reading about john mclaren and you won a bronze medal in 2010 uh you managed china in 2013 2017 uh asian baseball championship 2015 uh and when we talk about the agent the 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 china team uh the asian baseball championship you as much as anybody have that experience tell me the difference in in from a culture standpoint uh with those with those players versus players in america well the challenge that we had with our chinese guys is they weren't very strong at all and they never saw any velocity uh hitting because they never, they didn't have any velocity on the pitching staff. So we had to change, uh, the mindset 
on how you develop pitchers, pitch counts, recovery time. They, they don't believe in any of that over there, and they still don't. And I just – I went around in circles, and, you know, I was proud. We, we won a world, <clears throat> world Baseball Classic game against Brazil, and that was a big moment. I mean, that was – uh, we got we got like five million hits um, in China from our game, and it was a tremendous step forward. And they've they've made great strides. Major League Baseball uh, has done a great job over there. There there will be a major league player from China. I don't know when, but there there um, there's several players in the United States playing now uh, with different clubs. Um, um, they've got a great program over there where they give them an education. Uh, they teach them the fundamentals of baseball. They're playing in more tournaments. And I, I'm really excited the direction that Rick Dell and Ray Chang um, have put together over there along with Jim Small and the MLB office. And um, uh, I, I love international baseball, Brett, because it brings people together. Um, I just, I just, you know, my time in Venezuela and Colombia, and then Pat Gillick sent me to Nicaragua and uh, with the Canadian team. And then I was a guest coach of the Italian team in 2010 in Taiwan. And then the three world baseball classics. And, um, uh, I've done clinics in Belarus and Dublin, Ireland, the Netherlands, Italy, uh, Germany. And, um, I've got a project now that I, I think I'm going to be involved in this um, uh, new professional league in Dubai. And uh, so um, I'm excited. Uh, you know, it's, uh, it's not, not Major League Baseball, but I my thing is giving back right now. That's all I care about. Uh, I'm, on the, I'm on the World Baseball Softball Confederation uh, Coaches Commission. And what we do is we certify coaches around the world. We're putting videos together and manuals together on uh, how to organize workouts. And, um, uh, you know, we have different levels and how to teach the game. And um, uh, that, that's what I want to do. I want to promote the game. And uh, if, for the guys who's never been involved in a world baseball classic, uh, you need to get involved. It's, it's, I tell you what, when I had my USA uniform on playing that national anthem, I, I've never been so proud being in a baseball uniform in my life. It was just an uh, uh, incredible experience for me. And uh, the relationships, the people I met, um, that was the first time I was around Derek Jeter. And what a professional. Uh, didn't have a big ego. Was such a routine guy. Um just did his job day in, day out, Chipper Jones. And then I was reunited with A-Rod and Ken Griffey Jr. And uh, Clemens was on the team as the last game Al Leiter ever pitched and meeting Derek Lee and uh, Chase Utley. And uh, it, it was fabulous. I, I just uh, – it was it was such a great experience for me. I just uh, – uh, just uh, the, the memories are, will always be with me. I want to talk about the the coaching, the coaching staff, and I'm just going to go through one at a time. You were a bullpen coach, uh, 
as an outsider, the, a man that's never been a bullpen coach, it looks to me like a lot of babysitting, a lot of, uh, a lot of nonsense going on in the bullpen. I know those guys, those, the, we always, we always tease the position players that the bullpen guys, you're in the bullpen, you're probably a weirdo. You know, and a lot of my friends can attest to that. They are strange. Uh, they probably think I'm strange in my own right. What goes into what's your job as the bullpen coach other than answering the phone, getting people ready? Once that game starts, what's your job as a bullpen coach? We talk about the hitters during the game. Uh, you know, we got the iPad out there. Um, um, I prep the. Uh, Pitchers warming up. We got one. I tell them. I tell them the hitters coming up. Their strength and weaknesses real quick. My main job, and I learned this in 1992 when I went to Cincinnati. I would ask Charlton Dibble. I said, "Are you guys ready?" Yes. I would step right in front of that mound, and they wouldn't throw another pitch. I I was not going to let them, because of nervous energy, just fireball pitch after pitch and use all their good stuff up in the bullpen. And to me, that's a key of a good bullpen coach is to regulate your pitchers out there. A lot of people think it's just a babysitting job, but I did my homework on this job. I was prepared for it. I talked to a lot of pitching coaches, some bullpen coaches, and uh, you can ask Norm and them. Uh, you, you ready, Norm? I'd step right in front of that mound. There's no way you could throw another pitch because I knew that we had plenty of time. The phone would ring number one. And uh, as, the, as the inning progressed, um, uh, you know, if I could see the pitcher start and struggle a bit, I'd back off and start letting him throw a few more. But to let them burn all them pitches out in that bullpen before they w- w- went in, it just didn't make any sense to me whatsoever. Third base coach, you did that for a number of years. Uh, it's really an important position. It's overlooked. It's, it's easy to get criticized, you know, because all the great – choices you make as a third base coach, the one that's caught in a big situation, that's all they're going to talk about. They're not going to talk about the 10 other great sends you have or the great decisions you made. They're always going to point out that one. So you're never going to get the praise, but you're always going to get the critique. Uh, Talk to me about how you prepared uh, for that third base cup third base coaching job. Cause as players, we know there's no glory in it, but we know how important it is. Toughest job in baseball in my in my in my mind. Um, uh, I would scout. I would I would scout the scouting reports on the plane. I would I would uh, look at their arm strength. I would always try to see if if they took infield uh, to see how they were throwing. Uh, I would ask our scouts uh, if this guy hit the cutoff man. Um, did it did how how the arms were on their uh, relay guys. Uh, I mean, like when we set up our uh, cutoffs and relays, like Jay Buhner, our guy, our cutoff guy didn't have to go out as far because Jay Buhner's arm could take his all the way he, he wanted to. So, you know, why give it to a, a relay guy that didn't have as strong as arm? We backed the guy up a little bit. And I, I got one third base story that will always stick out in my mind. We're playing a Sunday night game in Seattle in the Kingdom. Uh, Joe Morgan's doing the game with John Miller, and um, we're losing one nothing in the bottom of the ninth. And we hadn't scored in a bunch of games. And there's uh, Joy Core was on third base, and there's a short 
not short. It was a medium to medium short fly ball to right center. And we're playing the White Sox. And um, I sent Joy Cora as a bang bang play at the plate. And he's called out, and the game's over with. So I'm walking off the field. You know, I'm not feeling real good. You know, um, uh, I just felt like it was the right decision to make. We hadn't been scoring any runs. Um, um, we didn't have a good hitter coming out. I'll just say that. I'm not going to say it was, but uh, I just took I took my shot there. So I, I'm walking to the dugout and lose waiting on me. He said, what happened? I said, what happened? He's, I said, he's out. That's what happened. And I walk, I just kept walking. I was, I was, I was pissed. You know, I, I took pride in my job. I was pissed. So I go in the coach's room and, uh, Luke comes walking in smoking a cigarette and he's in the coach's room and the game's on, uh, uh, is on the, uh, the TV in our room and the sound's on. And Joe Morgan said, that was a great call by John McLaren. He said, they haven't scored in a week. And he says, you never know when that might jumpstart a team. He says, I thought it was a sound decision. Uh, it didn't work out, but uh, I thought it was I thought it was a good send. And Lou said, don't worry about it, Mac. I think we won six games. That had nothing to do with it, Brad. I'm not I'm not taking any credit for this thing or anything. But that somehow that game jump started us a little bit, and we started hitting after that. And um, you know, um, it's a tough job. Um, I, I think I would rather send the guy get thrown out than be a conservative third base coach because this thing is a complex position because you're working for the players. I want my players to get RBIs. I want to win games. You got to score runs, and when you when you roll it all in the, in, into the mix, uh, you got to be aggressive. You know, with two outs, if you could run, I'm going to send you almost 99 percent of the time. Um, when there's no outs, you got to be more conservative. I had one runner thrown out. It was in Milwaukee. Damaso Garcia was the runner. Uh, it was 1987. He got thrown out at home plate. We lost one to nothing in Milwaukee. And I'll never forget that as long as I live. And, um, uh, I couldn't sleep that night. I, I took the game home to me. Those guys that say they don't take the game home. God bless them. I did. I took the game serious and, when you coach third base, there's some decisions. You go home and you you keep rerunning them, and next thing you know, you've seen them on Sports Center. You've seen them again, and sometimes they would make me feel better. Like you know that that was a good sin. Then another time you say, well, I don't know about that one. You need to rethink that one. But uh, it's a difficult position. That I got I got utmost respect for third base coaches in the major leagues. The last one, and, and the one I I know you for the best best bench coach I've ever had is John McLaren, and speak to that bench coach position. How important it is your relationship with the skipper, uh, your job during the game, and then we'll get to some fun parts with, with me and you sitting on the bench when you know we're winning another series and lose, just rattling off random questions, and we're just we're just looking at <laughs> Lou going, "Hey Lou, yeah, whatever." <laughs> Remember yeah. the whatever? Yeah. Like, yeah, oh, boom. Yeah. Tell, oh, yeah. tell Lou whatever. Yeah. Whatever, Lou. But uh on a serious note, what what are the, what is your job? I know you set up spring training. It's not it's not a simple job. It it's a it's a lot of work. And oh, in between that you're, you're, you you have to be your Boone's personal BP thrower too on top of it, which is the oh, most yeah. pressure probably you've ever had. 
<laughs> yeah, throwing, throwing, throwing to you in the home run contest was was def- a lot of pressure. People have no idea how much because you want to keep rapid throwing, but you don't want to upset the timing of the hitter. And when you can see the hitter is a little over anxious, and you know you. you you know, I try to communicate you during that during that home run deal. Like, hey, hey, don't spin off. Stay with me here. You know, just to try to keep you calm down a little bit. But, uh, you know, number one, I, I don't think people have any idea how intelligent Lou Pinella is. Um, I know this is a fact. He, he's almost on the, on the genius side. Uh, but you don't think about that as Lou because you see him out there yelling at the umpire and kicking dirt and throwing bases and stuff, you say, well, this guy, you know, he couldn't be very smart, but he was an extremely smart guy, always a numbers guy, always a numbers guy. We always crush numbers from the first day I was ever with him that we crushed numbers. It was a different type of numbers, but we crushed numbers. And in fact, I went to a Texas A&M football game uh, two years ago, and Jackie Sherrill was in our box, and all he was talking about how did Lou Pinella do things? And he told me, he says, I did numbers back at university of Pittsburgh, but I didn't want to tell anybody else. Cause I didn't want to give anybody my secrets. And that, that was Lou. We, he I always had the numbers for Lou. Um, we had a formula we would use. Uh, I always had a chart with every, uh, their, their, their starting pitcher, number of innings, number of hits he gave up, number of walks he gave up, number of home runs he gave up against right and left. And uh, we could tell, you know, when we didn't have a set lineup, uh, sometimes you could play a lefty on a lefty. Uh, That's, you know, that, you know, and we could do that. And um, so when, when I would deal with Lou is I would suggest things, but I was suggesting, I would suggest moves where he had enough time to to, to digest it. He would have time t- to put it through his mind and think about it. And it wouldn't be a, a rash decision in a hurried decision. And there's a lot of times, I mean, I, I, I tell this story about Lou as much as anybody. We had just moved into Safeco. And um, he says, what do you want to do here, Max? And I told him. And when he would ask me, I would rather, I would either reaffirm what he was thinking or he would make him think about why I wanted to do something. And sometimes he would change his mind. Sometimes he wouldn't. So this one night, you know, what do you want to do here? And I told him it didn't work, you know, and about two innings later, Oh, what a dumb move that was. What the, you know, I mean, I knew I could feel the heat on me that he was throwing it back to me and I got it. I got it. You know, I understood Lou and, you know, and so the next night we're in the same deal, seventh, eighth inning. Uh, what do you want to do here? Mac, I said, you know, Lou, you make $3.5 million. Why don't you make the decision? I turned around and walked off. He came over and gave me a headlock, and he looked me in the eye. He says, I love you, man. He says, you give me an honest answer every single night. And he said, a lot of these coaches are intimidated, and they're afraid to speak their mind because they'll know I jumped down their ass. And you never, you're never – intimidated by me doing that. And I really, really appreciate you doing that. Brett, we were in Tampa Bay right at the beginning and we did not have good pitching. And this is how far ahead of the game Lou was. And I talked him out of it. I'll tell you the story. 
he wanted to start the starters, the openers, and bring the starters in later on. And all the coaches agreed with him, and um, he came to me in the back of the plane after we had a meeting because he says, get all the coaches together, and he told them what he wanted to do, and they all agreed with him. And I didn't say anything. He says, Mac, you didn't say anything. I said, Lou, you got one more stop left at you. I think you're a Hall of Fame manager, but I think one more good run with a good team, you're in the Hall of Fame for sure. I would hate to spook. Number one, you you outprice most teams paying managers. Number two, you want to be on the East Coast now. And I said, some of these modern-day general managers, if you make a bold move like this, I said – I don't know if baseball's ready for it. You might chase some of them off. So he he decided not to do it. But he thought this is this has got to be 2004, Brett, that he thought about this. And I've thought about this, and I kind of felt bad that I talked him out of doing it. But I just didn't think baseball was ready for it at that time. And I and I always had lose back. I I I knew he had one more run left, one more team, and he did. He went to the Cubs, and he missed the Hall of Fame by one vote. And I think. He's up in uh, either 23 or 24, and he'll get in the Hall of Fame then with the Veterans Committee. And then uh, I can't wait for him to get in because I think he's a Hall of Fame uh, manager for sure. Mac, all the positions. What are you? What What are you most proud of? All the things you've done in your baseball life. Being able to call you and Jay Buner and Ken Griffey Jr. and saying hello and Mark McLemore, saying hello and and you guys showing respect. That's the most I'm proud of. Pretty awesome. John McLaren. And like I said in the opening, truly one of one of my guys, one of my favorite guys of all time. Helped me a lot, Mac. You made me laugh a lot. We had some unbelievable times. What a great year you've had and your, a great career you've had. And it's not over yet. You're still going, giving back to the game. One of the true baseball guys in all the game. Johnny. Thank you for coming on the program. And what we do each and every Boone podcast. At the end of the podcast – is we kick it back to the voice of the podcast. And that voice is Dan Levy. Dan, that's going to do it for the Brett Boone Podcast. My name is Dan Levy, the technical director, producer, voice of the Boone Podcast, EP, executive producer, Rich Herrera, digital. All gets uploaded by Liz Landry. Do us a favor, share the Boone Podcast, neighbors and friends and all those that love sports. Make sure you subscribe. Never miss an episode. And while you're at it, give us a five-star rating and share your feelings about the podcast by leaving a review on whatever platform you listen to the show. For all of us here on the Boom Podcast, he is Brett Boone. You can find him on social media at the Boone29. I'm Dan Levy, BASS on air. That is base on air, all of my social medias. Thanks for listening. We'll do it again soon. Have a great one.